Um, thank you, Joe. Thank you to the school for the invitation and, and for the money. That, that's good. Um, what I want to tell you all about today is um, a series of solutions to, to something that I think is a major problem across a lot of, I was going to say science, but actually academia, which is that my cartoon that's on the, the screen now is how I and a lot of my colleagues feel about the amount of data that's coming our way. It's become, in a whole variety of fields, really much easier than it was to get information, um, whether that's um, having digitized images of every book in the Harvard Library that you can search, as Google Books offers, whether it's, as you'll see in a second, having millions of galaxies instead of 10 to look at, or whether it's being able to put several hundred cameras in the field for an ecology experiment instead of just sending a single PhD student with a notebook. Um, and dealing with that amount of data is overwhelming because the amount of money and resources and people we have doesn't scale with the amount of data. If I get a million galaxies instead of a hundred, I don't get uh, suddenly a lot more PhD students to help, help sort through. And so while big data brings great opportunities, um, we need to be extremely clever about how, how we deal with it. And that theme actually is um, the, the fundamental idea behind the computational cosmology program uh, that we put together alongside the Oxford Martin School. So I'll talk mostly about my part of it, which is this idea of citizen science, uh, of increasing the number of people involved by uh, getting volunteers uh, involved rather than than paid scientists. Um, but the, the program has three parts, really. One is uh, to utilize the expertise that we have in the Department of Physics um, in supercomputing. This is the Barcelona Supercomputer Center. Uh, Pedro Ferreira, who runs, who heads our program, likes to describe this as the first postmodern supercomputer, because it's set in a chap old chapel. Uh, but the, each of these is a massive computer. This runs things like simulations of the universe that I'll show you a little later. Um, so applying computing solutions to big data is one part of what we're up to. Uh, the other is being intelligent in data analysis. So this is a sketch of what the next generation of telescope might look like. This is part of what's called the square kilometre array. Uh, square kilometre because that's the collecting area of its dishes. Uh, and this will be built either in Africa or in Australia in about a decade's time. Uh, this, once you start doing science on this scale, all sorts of interesting things happen. I mean, the most expensive thing about this telescope is the wires that connect the dishes to the central uh, signal processing center. Um, the SKA will produce every day the same amount of information, same amount of data that's on the internet now. And so just literally working out how to cope with that amount of data and how to choose what to keep you can't store that amount of data, so you need to filter it almost instantly. Um, and just working out how to make something useful of this huge amount of data is a major part of what we're up to. And then the third part, my own, is um, recruiting extra people to help us uh, and to keep human intuition as part and hu the human pattern recognition skills as part of the, the scientific process instead of just resorting to to automatic data analysis. Um, am I wandering too much for the camera, by the way? I see you flinch whenever I move. Okay, I'll stay over. Should I stay here? Is this good? Excellent. So what I'm going to do is mostly this is a, a tale, uh, this is a talk made up of anecdotage. 
So I, I want to explain to you how we got involved in having 300,000 people uh, do our research for us, uh, what results they've come up with, or at least some of them. And then I'll look at other projects that have done similar things and try and draw some general lessons about what works and what doesn't uh, in the hope that sitting in the audience there are people who understand what it feels like to be in this picture and might want some help. So for me, the problem was caused by this thing. And this is what happens if you let particle physicists build you a telescope. Uh, for those who, those who aren't astronomers, um, normally we spend our time applying for, spending a, a, a lot of our lives bidding for telescope time. And if you're lucky, you might get five nights on a telescope in Hawaii. Uh, you fly to Hawaii, you sit at the telescope. If it's cloudy, that's tough luck, you have to reapply. Uh, if it isn't, you take your data, and then that's your year's work is analysing that data. Uh, and then with the results, you write your next telescope proposal, you go back to Hawaii, and it's terrible work, but somebody has to do it. Um, things are moving away from that model. It's inefficient. Uh, sending me to Hawaii is expensive and time-consuming. Um, and also, we want it's not very statistical. We'd rather have an unbiased survey of the universe in many cases. And so this telescope, this is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey in New Mexico. Yeah, it's mirror, which is buried in here, is about 2.4 two and, two and metres across, in fact. Got a couple of astronomers for scale down here. Um, astronomers are normal-sized, so just see. <laughs> they're, they're not really small. Um, and the idea here was to take images of and measure the distance to a million galaxies. Number more or less randomly plucked out of, of thin air. It sounds good. And it, what this telescope did was, rather than track across the sky to find galaxies, it more or less pointed uh, in a particular direction and allowed the sky to turn over it. And that gives you about two minutes for the field of view. So you've got your galaxy crosses your camera field of view for two minutes. So you've got two minutes to take an image of it in five colours so that you can get information about how it looks at different wavelengths. Um, and then they went back and they used fibre optic cables to, to measure the distance to, uh, to each of the galaxies. So you take the light from the galaxy, you put it into a spectrograph, and you, do the, you could do 500 at once because you're using fibre optics. One nice story is there was an uh, Anglo-Australian project that was running at the same time as the SLAN, not doing the imaging, but doing the distance measurement. And they invented this fantastic machine that if you gave it an image of a field of view, it would recognise where the galaxies are, and it would go out and it would position the fibre optics in the correct places. It's this little robot arm that would do this, and then you could put that on the back of your telescope. The Americans realised that developing such a system would be expensive, and so just employed grad students who looked at the image and then drilled the holes and put the fibre optics in. So it's an early use of solving problems by human intuition. And the reason we want to do this, just to give you some context, is um, that when you look at the universe on the largest scales, we see interesting structure. So this is a, an early map. This is from um, the CFA survey. So this is 1998 or the 90s. So we're situated here in the Milky Way. This is distance, and we're looking at a slice of the sky. You can see this. Well, actually, this figure became very famous because there's this nicely humanoid shape. Each dot is a galaxy. Galaxy is 100 billion stars or so. And we see that there's some structure out here. And so Sloan's mission was to extend this and actually give us a proper picture of the, the nearby structure. So if we can kill the lights so that people can sleep politely um, and so that you can see this. Um, what I have is a movie from when Sloan was halfway done. So this is 500,000 galaxies. And we're going to start on the Milky Way 
and we're going to move outwards through space. Um, and to begin with, well, this is, okay, so it's just over half a million galaxies, 565,000, in fact, 715, and a few quasars, which are active galaxies, thrown in. Um, but as we move outwards, it looks like they're randomly scattered. We just have these points of light, each of them containing hundreds of billions of stars, or 100 billion stars or so. Uh, and as we move outwards, suddenly you begin to see this large-scale structure I was talking about. Ignore the stripe down the middle. This is just because we're looking in a couple of slices. But there's structure out here and on this side uh, that you can see, for example, there's a, there are places where there are lots of galaxies and there are voids where there are relatively few galaxies. And if you're writing a press release, it's compulsory to describe this as the cosmic web, uh, this honeycombed structure. And in a second, um, we'll stop and we'll rotate. So we have a million galaxies. We know their position, positions in 3D space. Um, and we can interrogate this data set to try and discover um, what we know about structure in the local universe. And what we'd like to do is try and explain this, explain why we came to have a universe that has this clumpy structure. And as it rotates, you can really get a sense of this, this honeycombed structure. Um, well, we have a pretty good model of how this sort of thing might form. Um, we know that the universe started off about 13.7 billion years ago in a very smooth state. And we can see the light from that time. This is about three, light emitted 300,000 years after the Big Bang, what we call the cosmic microwave background. And the colors here tell you about differences in temperature and therefore density. So they're, they're about one part in 10,000, the differences between the densest parts and the least dense parts here. But that's enough. You start off with these small fluctuations. And if I show you one of those computer simulations, um, this is 15 million years after the Big Bang. Um, places where, so the color here is telling you about density. So where there are light patches, that's slightly denser than the average. Where there are dark patches, it's slightly less dense than the average. Uh, the only force that really matters at this point in the universe's history is gravity, at least on these scales. And gravity has the effect of exaggerating these small differences. If you imagine being a particle sitting here, um, you have to decide whether to for go upwards or down. This has more stuff than this area. It's going to have a greater gravitational pull, so you end up being pulled down. That exaggerates this difference, so this area has any, the contrast becomes greater, and the effect snowballs. And so you go from quite a smooth universe, but critically not an entirely smooth one, from 15 billion years, sorry, 15 million years, to a billion years, to almost 5 billion years into the present day. And so what starts off as quite a smooth universe, happily, oops, yeah, happily becomes the cosmic web that we see today. Uh, you can see this process much more clearly if I show you this is, a, if I take out, let's take out this central section here, I've rearranged it, it's a slightly different visualization. This is run on that computer I showed you in the chapel. And you can see that each dot here is a galaxy, and they're merging, they're falling in along these filaments. And as time goes by, you end up with big galaxy clusters, uh, smaller interac interacting groups of galaxies, and these large voids, just as we see in the local universe. And the statistical fit between a comparison of this observation and the Sloan is really, really very impressive. If I ask questions like how many Milky Way-sized things are there in here, sorry, Milky Way mass things are there in here, and how many Milky Way mass things are there in the Sloan, we get the right answer. If you ask how empty are the emptiest voids, we get the right answer. If you ask how big are the biggest galaxy clusters, we broadly get the right answer. So we have a model that matches our universe. 
The only problem is that the ingredients that go into this model are particularly ugly and unsatisfying. Um, and particularly, and I, I keep meaning not to refer to this image off a, off a line that says it's ugly and unsatisfying. And then this is Professor Carlos Frank from Durham, who's neither ugly nor unsatisfying. Um, but the point, this is just a fantastic way of illustrating the mix of stuff that we have in our universe. 4% of this box is made up of the lit parts of Carlos's face. Uh, and that represents the 4% of our universe that's made up of ordinary matter, hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, and all the rest. Uh, just over 20% is made up of parts of his head that we know are there, but which we can't see. Just, as 20, just over 20% of our universe is made up of a form of matter called dark matter, which has gravity. We can see its gravitational effects, uh, but doesn't interact with light. If you don't put dark matter into these simulations, then gravity is relatively weaker than it would otherwise be. Um, and you don't go from, you, you get a universe without these exaggerated differences. You get a much smoother universe that doesn't fit observations. Um, the other 70 or so percent of this image um, is uh, made up of the rest of the box. And this represents the 70 percent or so of our universe that's made up of dark energy. Um, so this is an, an accelerating force. We now believe that the universe isn't just expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion. And that must be caused by an extra force. Uh, it's not gravity, because gravity is attractive. And we don't understand what dark energy is. It's a truly repulsive force. And so there are all sorts of ways of addressing this problem. We can study the early universe. We can think hard from a theoretical point of view about what dark energy might be and wait for, for inspiration to strike. Or we can try and find new ways to interrogate the data sets that we do have, the Sloan, new ways to compare them to simulation. And one place where we can make progress is to stop treating the galaxies as if they're all the same, without personality. Uh, if you notice, when I talked about the simulations, I talked about how many things the mass of the Milky Way there are. That's a very different question from asking how many things that look like the Milky Way are there. Because if you look at the galaxies, if you actually just physically look at the images of them, you find that galaxies come in a huge variety of shapes and sizes. Some are big ellipticals, some are nice spiral galaxies, some are interacting. We saw a couple of interacting galaxies in that simulation I showed you. Uh, and some are warped and distorted by previous interactions. And the shape of a galaxy turns out to correlate with its history, with the amount of star formation that's going on, uh, with all sorts of properties of the galaxies themselves. And so it would be a huge step forward is instead of just looking at that simulation and saying, where are the Milky Way size things? If I say, okay, where are the galaxies that look like the Milky Way? Where are the, merge where are the ellipticals? Are merging galaxies playing the same role in the simulation as they are in reality? And you could try and do this task with computers. Well, let me step back. When you had this many galaxies, professors would publish books with the definitive atlas of galaxy classifications. When we, in the 90, 80s and 90s, when there were thousands of galaxies, students would classify thousands of galaxies by eye. Um, and before I arrived in Oxford, that was tried with, in, uh, with the Sloan. as a student called Kevin Savinsky, who's now an Einstein fellow at Yale, whose thesis was based on looking at 50,000 galaxies. 
And Kevin found very quickly that that's the maximum you can get, get a student to, or we found that's the maximum you could get a student to do before they tell you where they can stick the other 950,000. But we also showed that it made a difference if you had a human classify the, these galaxies. Um, pattern recognition is something that we're innately good at. Um, and we're very good at, at picking out subtle details. These are all quite obvious, but some of the others are less so. And so we decided that to solve this problem, we needed some help. We could have applied for a research grant and spent three or four years developing a machine learning approach and trying to get from 80% accuracy to 85% accuracy. But instead, we thought if we make it simple, so this is a generic classification of galaxies, uh, but let's just take the simple division. Is it an elliptical, a big old uh, red blob of stars, or does it have nice spiral arms? And then we'll throw out the irregulars for now. We thought we could get amateur astronomers to help us out. And there's a long tradition in our field of amateurs making significant contributions to the science. And here are some of the people who've contributed over the years. We've got William Herschel, top left, discoverer of Uranus. Uh, actually a professional musician originally. Uh, later on made a huge amount of money selling telescopes. But he was never paid for his astronomical research. This is Will Hay, who was a comedian, uh, but was famous in, the 19, in 1930 for discovering a white spot on Saturn. Um, this, is, uh, this is Thomas Bopp, who discovered a comet that some of you may have seen in 1907. And this is Tom Bowles, who's a retired telecoms engineer who discovers supernovae, exploding stars. And he's the record holder, despite doing all his work from a shed in, Su in Suffolk. And so there was this tradition of amateurs getting involved, usually by building their own telescopes. But we thought, create a website, which is galaxyzoo.org, show them an image, and they're a collection of, yeah, go on then I can see if they're sleeping. Um, and then there are a collection of buttons. So in this case, is it an elliptical or a spiral? If it's a spiral, tell us which way the arms are rotating, or if it's an edge on. And then there's a star and uh, a butt of the galaxy merges. And I thought I'd give a talk to an amateur astronomical society. 50 people would go and classify 50 galaxies each, and you repeat every couple of weeks. And after a few years, we'd have a decent data set. We ended up launching, somehow ended up launching the project on the Today programme. That led to getting onto the front page of the BBC News website. This is 19, 2007. Uh, so this is the most emailed stories from, from the day of our launch. We're second. Uh, ahead of no sun linked to climate change, probably of better long-term importance, but behind man flies to wedding a year early. Because, <laughs> you know, some news is important. Later in the day, we were still there. You can't do much about huge dog is reluctant media star. <laughs> Um, but we were ahead of My Mother Held Me Down, which, as you can see, I didn't read. So I don't know what that story was. Um, and the response was absolutely incredible. So this is the first two days um, since the launch. This is 7 a.m. Today program. A um, couple of things to notice. So this is classifications per hour. So the largest professional classification at the time were Fukugita et al. Three people had looked at 3,000 galaxies. Um, Kevin, the student, had defined the unit of galaxy classification, the Kevin month, and we were doing more than one Kevin month per hour. Um, critically, you'll notice there aren't any classifications in here. Our, our servers were hosted at Johns Hopkins. Uh, we just had a collaborator there. Um, so 7 a.m. was 2 a.m. over there when we launched. At 3 a.m., the server that, that the site was on died. Uh, it literally caught fire. Um, and the sysadmin and Johns Hopkins got a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning from an automated monitoring service to say that Johns Hopkins physics was no longer on the internet. And he'd never heard of our project because uh, his 
my collaborator hadn't bothered to tell him because it's only a small project. Unbelievably, they got us back online later that day. And they happened to have bought a new web server they'd been meaning to install. Um, and we, we went on to great things. Now, it didn't continue at this rate, uh, but we've had, in the first three years of Galaxy Zoo, we had, as I said, 300,000 people and about 160 million classifications of galaxies. So the scale of data is enormous. Uh, I should point out that we no longer uh, have to worry about this. We host it with a cloud computing system rented from Amazon, the booksellers, uh, who also do all sorts of innovative web things. And if anyone wants to know more about how you cope with very spiky traffic on the web without bankrupting yourself or your department, I'll happily talk about that later. Um, the other critical thing, I said there was lots of data, but it's also really very good. So if you average, we have lots of people look at each galaxy. We do some statistics to identify those in the crowd who are actually pretty good and that we get rid of those who may be malicious or just not really paying attention. Um, and then we can sort our galaxies into ellipticals, clockwise spirals, anti-clockwise spirals, um, edge-on, alien spaceships, and uh, merging galaxies. And um, we can now really interrogate the data set. So all of this data is now public. Um, sadly, they wouldn't let us put 300,000 people on the author list. But there are about 20 papers which uh, now use the data, which is available if any of you are interested at data.galaxyzoo.org. So I'm not going to spend too much time on the astrophysics of this, but I just want to talk about a couple of interesting results to illustrate the breadth of, of things that we've been able to do. So just to remind you that the fundamental division is spiral galaxy, uh, elliptical galaxy. Spiral galaxy is, uh, tend to be the places where stars are forming. Whenever you look at an astronomical image where you see blue that's in the visible, these are massive stars that only exist for... Um, something like a hundred million years. So we know there's been star formation here in the last hundred few hundred million years. Whereas over here, very little star formation going on. And so what people had been doing before Galaxy Zoo often is using the color as a proxy for the shape. So if it's a blue galaxy, let's just assume it's a spiral. And that turns out to be complete rubbish, at least for some galaxies. So this is an ordinary blue spiral. Here's an ordinary elliptical. And we found this strange population of red spirals so these two are, are red spirals. They're as red as ellipticals. In other words, they have no star formation. Um, but they still retain their, their spiral structure. One of the weird things is they have a particular place that they like to live. So this graph, this shows um, environmental density. So if this was people, think of this as the center of London and think of this as the middle of the Scottish Highlands. So this is uh, the center of a galaxy cluster. This is the middle of one of those voids. This is the fraction of galaxies that are accounted for by these red spirals. And you see they love to live in the suburbs. They live on the outskirts of galaxy clusters. And what we think is going on is these are young, innocent spirals that until now have lived out in the middle of the sticks who have wandered into the big city for the first time. And they've undergone a process that's known as, as strangulation. They've had their gas removed, and thus they have no more fuel for star formation. And people sort of expected that to happen. You don't see many spirals in the center of these galaxy clusters. But the trick is that it's happened so gently. It's like having your pocket picked. The gas has been removed so gently that they've, remained, they've kept their spiral structure. And that's telling us something about where the gas is on the, in, in these galaxies. There may well be a reservoir of gas around the disk, which is hugely exciting. We've had people follow this up. And similarly, just so they don't feel left out, most ellipticals form in the early universe and are, are old, red, and dead by the time we get to them. We now have a whole set of blue ellipticals. Um, which are forming stars today at 
huge rates, much faster than the Milky Way, and we've studied these to try and understand how elliptical galaxies form. One result I can't resist mentioning, because otherwise I'll get, I'll get a question, is about the fact we asked people which way the spirals were turning. The point of doing that was to investigate a result that we didn't believe. So there was a paper by Michael Longo of the University of Michigan who said that you can't quite see these faint examples, but you can imagine two kinds of spirals. And the direction of the arms tell you which way the spiral's rotating. So this is an anti-clockwise spiral because it would be rotating in that direction, and this top one is a clockwise spiral. He'd looked at a few thousand galaxies and found more anti-clockwise spirals than clockwise. Um, and that th this result makes no sense across the sky. The kind of explanation that you come up with is a, a deeply non-trivial geometry for the universe uh, you, or a universal-wide magnetic field. Or Because if this result's true, you've got galaxies over there and galaxies over there who, which haven't had time to communicate, and yet somehow they both know both parts of the universe have an excess of anticlockwise spirals. This is deeply worrying. So we thought he just hadn't looked at enough enough spirals. It's like tossing a coin ten times and concluding it's biased because you've got six tails and four heads. Um, so we thought, well, we're going to look at a million galaxies, a few hundred thousand spirals. Uh, we'll show that it's 50-50. And we found the same bias of anticlockwise spirals. And for the, my fellow scientists in the room, it was something like an eight and a half sigma result. So in other words, it, this wasn't due to chance. It looked like a real result. But it still didn't make any sense and so we showed people mirror images of the galaxies. And if the result had been real, you'd expect suddenly to see an excess of clockwise spirals. And yet, when we showed mirror images, we still show, saw more anticlockwise spirals. And it turns out that there's a subtle bias in the human brain that makes it easier to recognize spirals if they're this way around than if they're this way around. So it's not that people were getting it wrong. It was just that they were slightly less like, if it was subtle, they were slightly less likely to see spiral structure. And there's, it turns out there's a well-known illusion that's uh, the, the equivalent of this, which is called the ballerina illusion. So I don't know how many of you can see her rotating clockwise. You can put your hands up. I love peer pressure. It's always one and then everyone else. Anti-clockwise? Has anyone seen her switch? If you want her to switch, if you, if you sort of wobble your head like that, it will amuse me and make no difference to the <laughs> image whatsoever. Um, but it turns out if you integrate, if you take a lot of people over a lot of time, there's a bias. The human brain has a preference as to which way uh, she's rotating. And yet we found this effect in static images. People are interpreting the spirals as motion into the page, and their brain is, is wired. Interestingly, um, this illusion doesn't work if you know ballet. If you have a lot of people who actually danced uh, classical ballet know which way this is because of the way her arms are. And that, that can actually override this unconscious. Um, so there must be astronomers who can't un see this effect. But Michael Longo clearly did, because he reviewed the images looking for spirals before he classified them. And so he will have picked up this bias as well. So I guess the, the, there's a cautionary tale that if you're going to use humans as your data processing units, you better worry about the biases inherent, inherent in the code that's running on these deeply non-standard uh, processing tools. But the non-standard processing gets you a lot, too. In particular, humans are particularly good at look, making serendipitous discoveries. And this was an image of a perfectly normal spiral, particularly close one, called IC2497, has spiral arms. Um, and if you, this, if you put this, people had put this through computer 
classification routines, and presumably they spat out the result that it was a spiral. If you're a human, you're wondering what the green blob is down here. Uh, this was first noticed by a Dutch school teacher called Hanny van Arkel, who's now made it, who's, who's done a huge amount of science outreach about this, because this turns out to be a unique object in our knowledge of the universe. This is a hot cloud of gas, about 20,000 light years across, uh, which has been heated to 50,000 Kelvin without there being any stars in it. So it's been heated by a black hole that lurks at the center of this galaxy, and which has overfed and which has shot out jets which have excited this gas. Now, we see that sort of thing happening all over the place, um, but um, this black hole is now quiet. So in other words, th this was an active black hole 50,000 years ago, maybe a bit more than that, and it's now shut off. It's the only place in the universe, I think, where we can categorically say that this used to be active and it's now quiet. And so we've got Hubble Space Telescope images of this now, which I'm not allowed to show you because we haven't finished with them yet, uh, but, but trying to read off the history of the black hole at the center of this object. But it was only discovered because a random human looked at it and we can see that this is something worth looking at. And we're now trying to encourage people to do that. Um, so uh, this is just to illustrate on the site now, uh, you get to classify the galaxy, but once you've classified it, you can dig into a site that gives you all the, all the information we have. And so we're trying to encourage people to think about what they've seen and make use of the data. And we'll come back to that idea later. Uh, I can't resist showing you as well while we're talking about this. This is eye tracking data from uh, colleagues at John, uh, the Radcliffe, particular Stephen Hicks up there in, the, in their, their lab. So the blue dots show um, the track the eyes followed around these images of galaxies, and the red dots show where the eye lingered. And we've got the same galaxies for two different subjects. And what's interesting is that the person at the top was familiar with the project and with looking at galaxies. And so you can see they start in the center and then they go looking for spiral arms and they try and trace out, they trace this spiral arm and then this one, and then they think there's one here even though there isn't. And here there's sort of, you can't quite see in this image, but there's information down here and they concentrate on that region in trying to make a decision. Whereas this is somebody who, random, who was randomly in the lab and was confronted with galaxies and told to classify them. And they have a much more random walk. And so one of the things we're looking at with Stephen's group is whether beginners are more likely to make this discovery. Because if you're an astronomer and you're, imagine you were looking at your 50,000 galaxies, you may never, you may be so in tune and the image is always in the center, you may never notice this out here. Um, we also have a community that's associated with the project. So uh, in the first two days, we got 30,000 emails. Uh, and so we did, most of them said, your server's down, don't you know what you're doing? Um, but we decided that people should answer each other's questions. So we created a forum. But science has come out of the forum as well. So in particular, to give you a random example, there's this thing. This doesn't look like much, but somebody noticed it in the background of one of their images. Um, all they knew about it was that it was small, round, and green. And this is the internet, so it was an opportunity to make a terrible pun. So it's a P. And so it appeared on our forum with a thread that start, said, give peas a chance. And you had this image posted. I took a note of who's la who laughs at that. It's really not, not impressive. Anyway, and there, there were then three more th pages of th puns about peas, um, at which point some, somebody decided that the rule was going to be you could only make a pun about peas if you find one of these. 
And so the people went back to the site, classified galaxies, and keeping an eye out for these. And they, they eventually assembled about 50 of them, at which point they noticed they all have quite a distinctive colour. You don't get galaxies that are this colour. Um, and they thought that might be useful. So they recruited a computer scientist. We weren't involved. We were too busy with the Volver. So they, they did send us an email about the piece, but we didn't pay any attention. They recruited a computer scientist from the forum um, who then wrote a database query to the professional database that pulled in everything that had colors that were roughly associated with this. They then built their own website that operated like Galaxy Zoo to sort through the things. And they had a meeting in London, I think it was, to decide what made a P. And so there's about 20 people who are collaborating on this. And only a couple of them had any background in, in anything remotely scientific. They decided that it had to be round, it had to be this color. Having classified them, they now had a catalog of a few hundred, um, and they went back to the professional data sets and pulled down the spectra, which they analyzed using Excel. And they noticed that the spectrum of a P is particularly distinctive. It has a very large uh, line. Most of the light comes from emission from what we call O3. It's doubly ionized oxygen. Um, and very little in everything else. So these people reinvented signal to noise. Uh, they decided that to be a P, it had to have the ratio of the, the top of the O3 line to the average of the whole spectrum it had to be greater than 10. And then if it was that, it classified as P. So we got an email that didn't say, what's this strange object? It said, we have discovered a collection of objects which have the following properties. We've excluded these. It's essentially sections two, three, and four of the paper. Uh, and what's fascinating about the P's, which turn out to be the sites of the most efficient star formation in the local universe, they're dwarf galaxies that are suddenly converting, for reasons that aren't yet clear, all of their gas into stars right now, um, is that once you know they're there, you don't need people to find them. This is everything in Sloan, plotted in what we call a colour-colour plot. So remember, Sloan takes images in five different colours. And so in this case, we're taking the brightness in the red and subtracting the brightness in the infrared, and then this is green minus red. Uh, red are galaxies. Purple are active galaxies, these quasar things. And, if, and you can see the P's have a very distinctive space in here. And so once you know they're worth looking for, you don't need a citizen science project to go looking for them. But we did need the citizen scientists to notice that they were there in the first place. I'm sure people had plotted this. But when you, if you had in your head that you have galaxies and quasars, then these become just the outliers that you don't worry about. And so one of the interesting things about the data deluge is knowing how to make best use of your ability to automatically sort the data. So I think one mode that will become increasingly important is giving humans a small amount of your data, allowing them to classify it into categories or allow them to make initial decisions about what's worth looking at, and then going and applying that to a large amount of the data. So I think the P's are a very interesting story. Inspired by all of this, we decided that it wasn't just galaxies that we wanted to look at. There were other astronomical places where we had too much data. And we were beginning to get phone calls from other researchers who said, well, I've got too much data. Um, can you help? And so we decided to build what we call the Zooniverse, which is a collection of citizen science projects that do real science online, is the, t is the tagline. So these are all projects which require the input of ordinary people to um, do extraordinary things. Sorry, that's the press release. Um, require the general members of the public to make some contribution to science, you, typically by pattern recognition. And when you start thinking about how you might build this, um, there's 
it becomes quite interesting. You have to start thinking on a systems level. So this is Galaxy Zoo schematically. There's a website which talks to a server which also talks to a database. And so we have this very linear structure. And the obvious thing to do would be to clone that. So these are all real projects. But if you wanted to look at crows or the moon or papyri, um, you'd, you'd, just call, you'd, you'd clone the whole thing. So each website would have a server and a database. Actually, that's a really silly way to do things. Not only is it inefficient, because you have to build the code from scratch each time, or at least adapt it, but also these projects can be abstracted to be a very general thing. So this is an example of what, what we'd call a domain model. So each one has a user, so that's the volunteer. Uh, we have what we call assets, which are the image, might be a video, it might be a graph, something that the user sees. And then we ask them to make an annotation of that asset. So it's a spiral galaxy. And they do that usually by selecting from an answer um, or by giving an answer. Like The interesting thing is 1 minute 37 into the video. Uh, that falls into a project. project might have many tasks. You might have alerts which tell the volunteers when you need them. But all of this is completely generic. It's only the very top level. Uh, if you go back to this slide, it's only the yellow bit that needs to be different. It's the website and maybe the actual tool which you use to interact. Uh, because maybe you want to draw circles on your picture or answer questions or stop a video. But we can, we can abstract that and we can build something very generic. And so that's what we do. So we now have uh, a data layer. So this contains the images, uh, the results, the, the answers we get back, and also information about the users. Uh, we have a thin... Um, this is all on virtual machines in the cloud. But we have a compute layer that decides, maybe, maybe makes decisions about what data to show, uh, but also analyzes the results. And then we have what's called an API. So this is an application programming interface that talks to the, each of the individual websites. And of course, it need not now be the websites. We can generalize this and build an iPhone app, as Joe, who introduced me, did. And so this is out of date, but uh, a couple of months after launching our iPhone app, so you can classify galaxies on the go, uh, we have more than 350,000 classifications, thousands of new users, and we're already seeing this is actually quite popular and quite addictive. People who use the iPhone app contribute more than people who go to the website because they're bored. You can even download, if you know you're going to be away from the internet, you can download galaxies in advance <laughs> so that you need not miss out. Um, so, so we have this generic way of building projects. The next criticism of that plan, I guess, is well, why would anyone do this? Why would members of the public, we obviously hit something with Galaxy Zoo, but why would they want to look at the moon or uh, classify papyri or look at videos of crow behavior? Um, and the truth is that we're still exploring that. But we did do a survey of 10,000 of our keenest users. Uh, in fact, the, the methodology is sort of interesting. We did interviews with 100 of them over Skype or over the phone, and we just asked them the free question about what their motivation was. We recorded what they said, and we then took every motivation that those 100 people gave us, and then those were the options offered in a survey to 10,000. So we tried very hard to make sure we weren't dictating. Um, and then we asked people what their motivation was and what their primary motivation was. This is the raw data from the survey. So lots of them are what you expect. I like science. I like astronomy. I think the project's cool. I want to help. This one's fun. There were about 10% of people said their primary motivation was that they like to think about the scale of the universe. 
at some point during their day. And yeah, I think it's reassuring to know it's not just me. Um, I recommend it for those of you who don't spend a few seconds classifying galaxies and thinking about the scale of the universe. It's like a computer game. Um, the images are nice. My teacher made me do it. Uh, my friend made me do it. Um, viewer, I think, was I like to, I just like to see the images. I want to learn something, prefer not to answer. And then overwhelmingly, the primary motivation was I want to help with research. Like, divorced from astronomy or science, I want to do something on the net with my spare time that helps with research. And these people, it turns out, weren't amateur astronomers. In fact, we select, we, don't, we have very few amateur astronomers amongst our hardcore users because I think they've already got the astronomy in their day. But these are people who, or their night probably, these are people who honestly just want to do something useful. And it's a talk about the internet, so it's traditional at this point to make the point that there's a huge amount of time, spare time out there. So this is a slide I think from Clay Shirky, um, misspelled on his own slides, so somebody else must have stolen it. So if you just take the amount of time we spend watching television, so this is uh, a couple of years ago, 200 billion hours a year are spent watching TV uh, in the US uh, by adults only. And the total amount of effort taken to create Wikipedia is something like 100 million hours. So that's it to scale. And Galaxy Zoo would be a tiny infinitesimal dot on this scale. Um, and so if you think about the world we're, we're living in, more and more people are coming home and instead of turning on the television, they're turning on the internet or sitting in front of a laptop. And if only a tiny fraction of them want to do something useful, there's a huge resource out there. So then you have to think about what kind of projects would work. And our approach is that we don't know. We could do, and we are doing a whole load of education research to try and understand what these people are getting out of it and why they're doing it. But I think a much better approach is to try and do as many things as possible and see which ones work. And so we have a flexible system that lets us build projects, and we can have a look at some of the things we're doing. The first thing I want to absolutely nail is that people don't do this because of beautiful images, or at least you don't have to have beautiful images to do this. Because it's clear that one attraction of Galaxy Soup, despite what I said about research, is that you occasionally get a pretty, pretty spiral or a beautiful galaxy. But one of our projects which works very well is the supernova project. And so we're looking for exploding stars. And one of the reasons you do this is to try and constrain uh, that dark energy that I talked about near the beginning. Uh, it turns out that a particular kind of exploding star, type 1A supernova, always shines with roughly the same brightness, or at least we can standardize it, and we can get a sense of how powerful the explosion is. Uh, and if you know that, you know how bright it appears, you can get a distance. And that tells you how much the universe has expanded between today and that time when the supernova went off. So we need to find these. Uh, there's a telescope in Palomar, in California, which ironically was used for some of the big surveys in the uh, 70s and 80s that, that the Sloan has taken over from. Um, it scans the sky. It passes data. So it'll take an image like this one. Oh, sorry, like this one. So this is a, uh, let's see which way. This is the new image. This is a reference image from early in the survey, and then a subtraction. And you see, this is a get bright galaxy, and you can see that there's a new star. And sometimes these can outshine uh, the whole galaxy. And sometimes they're obvious, and sometimes they're not. What the telescope used to do was pass these images to an AI system, a machine learning system, which would make a decision about whether there was a supernova or not. And then you follow up with a bigger telescope and try and confirm them. 
and the success rate was something like 30 to 40 percent. 34 to 40% of the candidates that were identified by the machine learning system um, turned out to actually be supernovae. We still pass it through the machine learning system, but now we pass them to a zoo, Galaxy Zoo supernovae. Um, as soon as data arrives, we email people. And so, because there's enough data to keep a few thousand people busy for 20 minutes a day, I guess. And so you get an email that says, we need your help right now. People log on. Usually we get complaints that the data runs out. If you don't happen to be on your email at the right time, we're done. And then you go through and there are a set of questions about can you actually see a candidate? Is there a glitch in the image? Is the candidate in the center of the galaxy or is it off to the side? And then we report back to the team within an hour or so. Uh, we give them a prioritized list of candidates and we go up to about an 80 or 90% success rate. And so we increase the number of supernovae that are discovered just by involving a few thousand people responding to an email alert in the loop. And so um, you could sort of imagine this in the future. So here's a, this is actually a telescope that will be built towards the end of this decade. You can see that astronomers will become more androgynous. Uh, they're still for scale, but I'm not, no clothes either, which is slightly worrying. This is the LSST. So this will scan the whole sky every three nights. Uh, it's as big as some of the biggest telescopes in the today. So 70, to give you the scale, LSST is going to produce 70 terabytes of data a night and possibly 10,000 candidate supernovae a night. So plan A is to pass them to people and then do follow-up observations. But actually, we're, somewhere around LSST, we start to overwhelm the capacity of people. Besides, they'll be off busy doing all our other projects. And so it turns out that um, you use a computer to maximize the completeness. Give me everything that might be a supernova, and then people, say, minimize the false positives. But it turns out that this data set is also really good for improving your machine learning. If you feed something like a neural network, a training set that doesn't just include the right answers, this is a supernova, this isn't, this is a supernova, this isn't. But if we feed people, if we feed the neural network, this is a supernova, and 83% of humans think this is a supernova and this isn't a supernova, but 17% of people thought it was, then you can get a much cleverer neural network. And we can, we can show that this actually improves. We've shown in a couple of toy models so far that this actually improves uh, the performance of the neural net. And so again, it's this principle of maybe, maybe you do this live. Maybe every night, 5% of the data goes to the zoo. You retrain your neural net for that night's conditions. Uh, and then the rest of them you, you process automatically. And you can get this quite powerful synergy. Oh, I did it again. I keep using the word synergy in talks. I'm really sorry. I've been spending too much time writing grant proposals. Uh, this really nice interaction between, uh, between computers and, and humans. Um, so that's the, it doesn't have to be beautiful. The next question is how complicated a task can we manage to get people to do? Clearly, as the tasks get harder, you get fewer people. But um, we have managed a few things. So we discovered, uh, and Daniel wrote the papers on this, he's sitting, sitting there to correct me, uh, discovered a few thousand of these merging galaxies, which are interesting in their own right, but you'd like to simulate them. You'd like to model uh, the collisions so that you can find out what the galaxies were like initially and what they were like in the end. Um, and again, you know, computers can get you so far, but you need to compare the output of the simulation by eye with the actual image of the galaxy. And so we built a fruit machine that you click a button, you get eight simulations compared to this actual galaxy in the center. 
And you can see that most of these are pretty close, but this one has its spiral arms in roughly the right. It's a terrible uh, image on the projector, so sorry. But this one has spiral arms, so I'll select that one, and then I can work on it myself. So you can give the person control of the, uh, of the simulation, and we found that people will happily, a small number of people, a few hundred people, will happily spend hours fine-tuning the simulation and getting the perfect match. And we can even do it for unusual galaxies. So I quite like this one. This is two ring galaxies. You get a ring galaxy normally where you get a direct hit. You get a shock wave that causes a ring of star formation. There's been some very strange interaction here. So we actually have two rings. Uh, you can't see the subtle detail, but we now have a perfect match. And I can't run it, but we have a movie that shows how you end up with this. It's, you get a, you want this one at the back becomes a ring, but doesn't quite escape, and then comes back and falls through this nearby one, causing a second ring. Um, so we can explain even the complicated things. So we've done some quite difficult conceptual modeling. Um, for starters, you have to understand what computer modeling is to understand what you're doing here. But the winners on this are actually a, a project from the biological realm. It's a project called Foldit, Fold.it, who were featured in this is Nature or Science Nature a few years ago. We were on page three of this article, but they got the headline. Um, what I'm going to do for Folder is uh, it's a game you download, and it's a very game-like experience. So I was going to try and run it, but rather than do that and try and talk to you, I found a nice YouTube video from the team of them playing with it. So if I play this, I'll talk over it. So what you're presented with is a protein structure. So this is the computer's best guess at the three-dimensional three structure of a, of a particular complex protein. And the game here is to try and get the lowest energy 3D state that you can manage. And so this thing up here that you can't quite see is giving you constant feedback about how good your structure is. You get a score uh, that goes up as you uh, create lower energy structures. And so it's marked in red. This area isn't very good. You've got two, these are hydrogen bonds, I think, um, all close together. So you'd like to bend those out the way and that will relax the protein. You can make all sorts of adjustments. What's clever about this is that a huge amount of intuition is in the tools. So this thing they're moving around now is a, is a, a type of bond. But you can see that it, you can't just move it in any direction. You can only move it through a set of positions. And they're defined by what we know about the chemistry of that kind of bond. So playing the game, you don't need to understand anything about that. You just know that when you have one of those squiggly ones, you can only move them every five degrees or, or whatever the rule is. There are also tools you can use. So you see they just, score, they just improve themselves, and they're told there's a good score. Um, it's a very different model from Galaxy Zoo. We try very hard to take into account everyone's views. We average uh, the results from 300,000 people. Here, they're only interested in the top two or three solutions. And so there's a live leaderboard up here that will tell you exactly where you are for this protein. All sorts of interesting things are happening with Foldit. Um, in particular, people are beginning to specialize. So no one in the biochemistry community, as far as I know, has thought of doing this. But the players have identified that there are three stages in finding a protein solution. Think of it as chess. There's a beginning, uh, there's a middle, and there's an end game. And they're beginning to special, there are players are beginning to specialize in one of these fields. Because there are different techniques that help you at different points. Um, and so they will team up to, to form a solution. To give you an idea of how successful Folded is, um, the protein folding community organizes a data challenge every two years in which they 
um, determine the correct solution by X-ray crystallography for a small selection of proteins. And then they um, challenge people to model those proteins. In the last, the results of the last one we have, which is 2008, 2010's just happened. I think Foldit will do well. 2008, there were 15 challenge problems, and Foldit came in the top five, or the best Foldit solutions were in the top 5% for seven of those 15 solutions. So they're beating not only professionals fiddling with these things, but also the best computer solutions. The best Foldit users are 16-year-old kid from Seattle. Uh, and they, their University of Washington, the team that built this, so they had him in, and if, if the anecdotes I've heard is right, the interesting thing is that he doesn't know why he's any good. And they sat him down and said, right, tell us, tell us how you would do this. And he made some changes and came up with this fantastic solution. Why did you do that? I have no idea. He's just learned how to play the game. It's a really interesting model of, of very, very complicated uh, interaction. It does, of course, require huge... They spent five years developing the game uh, because there's a huge amount of functionality. You see, they just moved up a level, which is good. Um, you get the idea. So I think you can have very complicated tasks if you're willing to put the resources in. Um, I think it's interesting that people are willing to do this, even though when you start, most people are terrible and most people will always remain terrible. Um, by playing this game, I have never made a contribution to science because I've never got anywhere near the top of any of the leaderboards. Whereas by classifying galaxies, I have done something useful because my vote counts. Something interesting there. The next, the final point I want to address is how difficult you can make these projects. And I've got the example, uh, I, I want to use an example that's often quoted uh, by people who talk about citizen science that I'm not sure worked, although it did produce results. This is an example from mathematics. It's an example, uh, it was started by a guy called Tim Gowers, who's a Fields medalist, the maths equivalent of the Nobel, I guess, in Cambridge. Um, and there's all sorts of interesting things about the mathematics community. If you've ever looked at maths on Wikipedia, it's at a much higher level than any of the other sciences. And that's because there are some eminent mathematicians who decided they were going to run maths on Wikipedia. And so, for example, the articles don't start with a general overview suitable for a general audience. They assume a level of knowledge that the other articles don't. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just pointing it out as a cultural difference. Um, so he posted this. This is on his blog. Um, is massively collaborative mathematics possible? So he said, okay, how can we... Sh At the minute, we all work, particularly in maths, they all work in a straight line. You know, I will sit down, I will work to solve, think of Andrew Wiles solving Fermat's last theorem, 20 years of, of hard effort on his own before the Eureka moment. Um, and Tim Gowers wanted to see what happens if we get lots of people working on the same problem. And he had a particular problem, it doesn't really matter the details, but it's called the density hales jewett theorem. And I know I won't need to explain that to any of you. Uh, it's actually quite, quite simple. If you imagine a noughts and crosses board, except that you've only got noughts, and the question is how many... Do I, can I put down before the next one has to form a line? So if you imagine a three by three noughts and crosses board, uh, it turns out you can put six noughts down before the seventh one has to form a line. You can basically do the edge and the corner, and then if you fill in any of the other three, three boxes, you will have to form a line of three. And all the density hales jewett theorem is, and it's, it's most simple, is what's that answer in n dimensions? So in an n-dimensional game of noughts and crosses, on a large scale, so not just three by three, but very large, what's the minimum number of counters I have to put down before I have to form a, a line? It turns out that uh, it's quite surprising. The number's quite small. 
even if you have a very sparsely populated board, um, you can you create a line very quickly. And the, the answer was known, but only through one of these ugly computer solutions to large mathematical problems. And the problem that Tim Gowers wanted to address was, is there a simple first principle solution to this problem? So he set up a blog, and he said, OK, just put your thoughts in the comments. And he set two rules. He said, you have to be polite, and you're not allowed to work on your own. As soon as you've had even a half-baked thought, you've got to write it up. And to begin with, and they also they invented a wiki as well to keep track of what was going on. Um, and there were about 40 people who got involved in this, ranging from a couple of school teachers through to a couple of Tim's colleagues. Um, and the discussion for the first 200 comments is remarkably general, and everyone is involved. And then quickly it becomes, it becomes as they begin to get somewhere, and they did solve the problem. Uh, and Tim described this, uh, or I've heard him interviewed, and he described this as this is to normal research as driving a car is to pushing it. Like it was the, for the, the, the hardcore mathematicians involved, it was this immensely joyful collaborative experience, uh, working in the open and, and working together to solve problems. Um, and some of the top mathematicians in the world cleaned off spam from the blog and, and you know, all sorts of other things. Um, but it very quickly narrowed down to being a spectator sport. It was collaboration in the open, much like advocates of open science want, want us to do, um, which is a good thing, I think, but, but separate. And then the teachers were there, but they weren't contributing. So this task was too hard because it involved expertise. So I put this in as a cautionary trail because you can't always do it. I think it's great that they did it, and it's wonderful. It's an incredible learning tool. If you were trying to teach somebody to be a university standard mathematician, you can see the thought process that these eminent mathematicians took. You can see them going into blind alleys and getting stuck and putting themselves out, but it's a very different thing. My final um, example of a limit to citizen science is that you can have an incredibly boring task. And one of the things I really want to discover by experiment is how dull a task you can get away with. Because there are many of us in science who know about dull tasks. Uh, and we, we often joke that you can tell that there's a good case for a citizen science project when somebody says some poor sod has to. You know, look at 63,000 videos of paint drying or whatever. I'm sure there's a paint drying research project somewhere that relies on visual techniques. And so our, our dullest example so far, which I'm really proud of, is a project called Old Weather that launched a couple of weeks ago. Um, Old Weather addresses a climate change problem, which is that there isn't a lot of reliable data in the archives from before 1920. But we do know that uh, mariners, and in particular the Royal Navy, we're incredibly good at recording weather observations every four hours. There's an example here. So this says, I've, I've picked one I can't read, which is nice. This is a wind direction, um, which I'll think about. Um, this is a code that tells you what the weather's doing, whether it's raining, how cloudy it is. This is a barometer reading and a temperature of the barometer, an air temperature, and a bulb, an isolated bulb thermometer. And every four hours on this log, whatever else was going on, and this is a column that describes everything else going on on ship, you'd have these uh, records. And there's been a small-scale research project that shows that they're accurate. When they're in port, they agree with land records we have. When two ships are together, they agree to within some ridiculous accuracy. So this is perfect uh, for feeding into climate models and extending the, the range of tests we could do of climate models. But we, you can't read this handwriting uh, by computer. This one's actually quite a good example, despite the, uh, the wind direction. But lots of them are, are hideous. Um, 
And so this is a dull task, so we have to work harder to convince people. And it's not a particularly sexy science. I don't think no one wakes up in the morning with a passionate desire to contribute to climate change model. Well, maybe they do, um, but I think it's unlikely. Um, and so we work harder to um, draw them in. So instead of just being presented with a random page, you follow a particular ship. So Stuart, who's in the audience somewhere, has chosen to follow HMS Invincible. Hasn't done much work yet, probably because he's sitting here. Uh, so you can jump aboard. And you'll notice he's ranked as captain of the vessel. So the person, so we've got this sort of very web 2.0. Um, you know, the person who's done most logs is captain. And you follow along with your crew and you follow the story of the ship. There was a wonderful blog post by somebody who'd been captain of a ship which they knew was heading for the Battle of Jutland. These are all World War I logs. Um, and then they went to bed and other people took them through the battle. So the, the title of the post was went to, went to bed, missed the battle. Uh, but you get to follow along. And so this is HMS Otranto that a friend of mine is uh, obsessed by. And it's, you know, there, there are lots of posts saying, well, we're in sunny Brazil and the weather's very interesting and we're getting value out of this data. And in the first couple of weeks, we've transcribed something like 200,000 pieces of weather information, which we can now send off to the Met Office where they're an eager audience. So even dull tasks, uh, I think, with a bit of work, uh, and a bit, of, a bit of thought about how to engage people can, can produce results. Which is pretty much what I wanted to say, other than um, I'm happy to talk about this stuff to anyone, no matter what the to topic of your research is. We have a system that makes it incredibly easy to launch projects um, that is designed to remove as much of the effort of building and running a website as possible from the researchers, because you all have better things to do. Uh, and so if any of you are interested, then please uh, come and find me tonight or, or come and find us in physics. Thank you very much. <laughs>